the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today, we untangle a gender bender brain twister. Episode 40 deeply impacts a caller on the flip phone, and we look at whether millennials will return to church once they finally settle down. Welcome to the 180 Cast. Hello, welcome back to the 180 Cast. I am your host, Georgie Borman, and this is the podcast dedicated to exploring how people change their minds. And in addition to that, helping to bring moral clarity out of cultural confusion, we do have some fun things to get to today. This is the first installment of a new format where I am breaking up the breakdown session into two mini sessions. I do hope that you are having a wonderful New Year. If you are wondering whether I have any New Year's resolutions, I do not have any to speak of at the moment, but I would like to say that a few days ago, my husband and I celebrated our eighth wedding anniversary. Yes, I am pretty freaking proud of that. We got married when we were 19 and poor and living in an expensive city and still in college. And now we have a home and a church that we're plugged into and two kids and a wonderful relationship that has only gotten stronger over the years. Like we're practically on the same wavelength, like 90% of the time. And I would not be able to do this podcast if it weren't for Cody and how supportive he is of me doing this and branching out and working hard on something that is a risk and different and not a conventional job. So if you love the 180 cast, you have Cody to thank for that. In an era where marriage is increasingly devalued culturally and questioned by young people as to whether or not they want to pursue it, I can unequivocally say that it is totally worth it. If you find the right person, and it is one of the hardest things you will ever do, second only to raising children, but again, totally worth it. And now that I have uh, gotten on my stump and given a little speech about how proud I am of my marriage, uh, I think it's time to check messages on the flip phone. I'd like to have an argument, please. I have a different interpretation. This message is from Gabriel, who is a regular listener and with whom I'm sure we share several political disagreements, but I'm so glad he listens and I am so thankful for his input and his insight. And here is what he said. My name is Gabriel Hash. I'm calling the 180 cast in response to having just listened to episode 40, which is called Evangelical Pastor Flips on Gun Regulation. This episode affected me profoundly. 
profoundly. It gave me great pause. I literally sat in my car for 25 additional minutes while I was in a driveway about to go into a Christmas party while listening to it. It was a very sobering episode. Of course, the episode is on the topic of gun regulation and, and gun culture as well. I'd like to emphasize the second part, gun culture, as well as a uh, culture that also try, that also um, uh, apparently uh, values life. I'm talking about the pro-life movement, um, which um, is often associated with the Christian, um, with the Christian culture, but also other 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 cultures as well. This episode was was uh, oh gosh, it affected me so many ways. It, it, had, it had a few. Uh, it had a few examples of um, of times when somebody tried uh, when when somebody made the choice to use a gun, and it may not have been necessary during that time. And it really emphasized gun culture and being prepared to take down any threat. But uh, what it also mentioned is, uh, in in some cases, uh, people are viewed as threats who may not actually be threats. And in that case, we are really not valuing life. Um, there was examples of people shooting at teenagers who were mouthing off, listening to hip-hop music. There was examples of, of even talk uh, among pastors who are arming themselves to shoot at anybody. This is a timely episode because we just had a shooting this week in which two church parishioners pulled um, a, a gun and one fired at a shooter, and it could have been a mass shooter. So in that case, uh, perhaps a mass shooting was prevented. Um, even so, there are certainly examples of people using guns when perhaps a gun is not necessary. So ultimately, the question is, in a culture that values life, how do we, how, how do we have responsible gun ownership and, and, and stewardship of weapons and at the same time value life? This is a very, very important question. And I think that stories like the story in this podcast have to be shared. People have to be aware of the value of life, and with their weapon, they have the ability to take it. And it's that's a horrible thing uh, that I wouldn't wish on anybody. Um, again, it, it, it's through sharing stories like the stories shared in this podcast that we can help to foster a, a, a culture that, that appreciates life. So I want to thank Georgie for putting this episode together. And... Um, Please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Gabriel, for listening, for taking the time to share your thoughts. And I really appreciate that and appreciate your compliments. Um, I think you put your finger on something important, and it is essentially one of the chief things that I came away from the episode really chewing on as well, and that is this idea of gun culture and the attitudes that people have toward guns, specifically in the United States. There's no question that we can't be cavalier about firearms. I mean, literally their entire purpose is to kill or to maim or to injure in some way. Like, they are deadly weapons. Most people who consider themselves like quote-unquote gun people are not cavalier about these weapons. And I think that that's a very important point to make. And I was talking to somebody just the other day who grew up in what one might call gun culture, where learning how to operate a firearm safely and effectively is just kind of like a run-of-the-mill thing. It's kind of like learning how to drive. And they were frustrated while listening to this episode because they're like, but 
we're not like that. We're not cavalier. We we take this very seriously. And of course, Reverend Shank was arguing that, well, I don't think that that having this widespread use of guns and having guns being a normal thing for normal people is compatible with this idea of the sanctity of life and us valuing life because having a gun and being prepared to pull it out and shoot somebody changes your interactions with people and it and it may mean in some cases that you're not valuing life as much as you would have if you weren't carrying that weapon because you have a certain mindset which is if you threaten me then I will take you out um there is I think a problem when you come out of these pockets that are quote-unquote gun culture where guns are just a part of your life just I mean it would be like taking away your vehicle to take away somebody's firearms like that's how important it is to to some of these people in, in some of these these areas of the country. Um, but you can't, that's not the extent of the people who own guns, right? There's a lot of other people who are not quote-unquote gun people and don't live in quote-unquote gun culture and aren't hunters who own firearms or who are willing to use firearms and do not have an appropriate attitude toward human life that is conducive to using that in the most responsible way possible in a way that protects life as much as possible over over you know killing it and when you look at the united states as a whole can you here's my question that i'm coming away with and really chewing on right now is if you look at the united states as a whole are we a country are we a culture that really values human life that really takes it serious, that says it is wrong to take a life unless that person is threatening you, bodily harm or potentially death or, or threatening somebody that you should be protecting. And I don't know if we are. I think that there are a lot of people out there who are kind of cavalier with guns and who, like, there's this one commentator i think maybe she's a youtuber or something i can't remember her name but i do remember coming across her like a banner photo on twitter and it's her and she's got like this american flag background and she's like wearing some strapless top or whatever and then she's got like an ak-47 that she's holding up like hey look at my gun wow i'm so cool and then her tagline is something like uh, my politics are conservative but the way i talk isn't and I just looked at that and I'm like, that, that must be what Reverend Shank was talking about, right? Like, that is not the attitude that you have towards guns. That is not the way that you treat them and brandish them like it's, I don't know, and what, I don't know, what is some other piece of technology that you, an iPhone? I don't know. But it, it just struck me as like very disturbing and unsettling to see that sort of thing and it's not uncommon it's not uncommon you come across you come across it a lot where you're like there are some people who have guns where you're like wow i do not i do not trust you with that um and you make me feel uncomfortable with that and there are some people that you're around who carry weapons like maybe even open carry and you're like yes i feel safe with that person around and i think that that's an important distinction to make i don't know where i disagree with reverend Sh is in terms of policy and and what to do about 
these instances where sanctity of life is not lining up with the way that people treat guns, the attitude that they have toward firearms. I do think that if it's a cultural issue, then most likely it's going to be solved culturally. And one of the biggest things that we can do for that is to promote the sanctity of life, to support that. And this is what I keep coming back to in this podcast over and over and over again. But if you don't have a biblical foundation for your morality, where are you getting any ideas and what justification do you possibly have for believing that life is sacred and that human life should not be taken unless it's a threat to you or a threat to somebody else that you are supposed to be protecting? It's like the answer to so many things. I'm like, well, revival. Like, I don't think we're going to get rid of abortion in the United States without a massive revival. Um, I don't think that we're going to have a more responsible attitude on the whole toward guns and have fewer people owning guns who aren't willing to take it extremely seriously and who have the right attitude toward the sanctity of life. Like, we're not going to get to that point without revival. We're not going to get to that point without people coming to church and, and coming before God and learning his laws and the way he designed designed society to work and for people to be in relationship with him like a culture that doesn't value life is not compatible with the right to bear arms like i'll just flat out say it and that may be controversial to some people but what at what point are we going to say well we've got a quarter of pregnancies ending in abortion and we've got people pulling the plug right and left on problematic patients and we've got assisted suicide that's legal in multiple states. And at what point are we going to say, wow, we really do not value life. And there seems to be something wrong with not valuing life and also having massive access to deadly weapons. So my answer would be, well, let's fix the culture. And the way that we fix the culture is by going back to God. I'm sure Reverend Shank believes that as well. I know he does. But also he believes in the regulation aspect, and that's where I would disagree with him. But overall, a very interesting conversation, a conversation worth having, and one that you're going to come away um, chewing on as well. So if you haven't listened to it, Reverend, I think I titled it Evangelical Pastor Flips on Gun Regulation something along those lines. So please do listen to it and share your thoughts on the flip phone as well at 323-991802. And you can also find that number in the description of the podcast episode. And I think that we can move on now to the Woke of the Week. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Mine too. Y'all about to get woke. So there's this article that has been making the rounds on social media. It is from the UK Mirror, and the title is Transgender Man Gives Birth to Non-Binary Partner's Baby with Female Sperm Donor. And I think that the UK Mirror wrote this in such a way that people would be absolutely flummoxed as to what is going on. And they wrote it in a less clear more confusing way than they needed to exactly so that people would click on it. Because this is the era of clickbait. Anyway, it says exclusive. Proud dad, Ruben Sharp, 
has revealed how he gave birth to miracle baby Jamie with partner Jay in Britain's most modern family, and even the couple's doctor was transgender. Okay, so I do appreciate the efforts of a lot of my conservative um, colleagues and uh, people I follow on, on Twitter who are trying to bring clarity out of the confusion here. Um, and, and, and I was a little bit surprised at how many of them actually missed one of the major aspects of this, this, uh, gender bender brain twister, if you will. So let me just read it again. And I'm going to give you a second to think about exactly what the situation is. And then I will tell you what the situation is. Transgender man gives birth to non-binary partner's baby with female sperm donor. Okay, okay, you want to know what's going on? Okay, transgender man, okay, I'm sure you got this part. Transgender man means female. Woman, okay? Woman gives birth to non-binary partner's baby. Okay, so non-binary partner. You can't tell from the title whether the non-binary partner is male or female. Actually, if you look at the last part closely, you would you would know that the non-binary person is in fact female because it says with female sperm donor. Well, of course, there's no such thing as a female sperm donor. And that's where, obviously, the UK Mirror was trying to get people to uh, click on this article because that's not a thing. That is not a thing that happens on planet Earth, anyway. Okay, so uh, most of most people have picked this up as, okay, so a woman gives birth to her partner's baby via artificial insemination. So, or... In other words, lesbian gives birth via artificial insemination and raises the baby with her spouse or partner. Well, you've missed quite an important part here, and that is the fact that this baby was grown in the womb via surrogacy. This baby did not develop in the womb of her biological mother. Um, you see, it says transgender man's partner's baby. Okay, well, if the partner is female and the transgender man who is female is giving birth to the baby, well, that would mean that it's not this person's eggs. It's not this person's egg that was fertilized. It was the partner's egg that was fertilized via the male sperm donor and then implanted in this transgender patient who then carried the baby successfully to term and now they are raising this child together. I, I, I just couldn't believe how many people missed the surrogacy aspect of it. But I, I mean, it is a very, 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 very confusing situation. But you should get used to seeing more of these things because this is going to be more and more popular, I predict in just a few years, we'll be seeing much more of this and you'll, will read titles like that and be like, oh yeah, I totally understand what's going on because it's just getting more common by the day. It raises a, a couple important points though. 
And the fact that people miss the surrogacy aspect, I think maybe speaks to how even conservatives are not focusing on the child as much as they could. They're kind of just, and it's understandable, but they're kind of just focusing on the weirdness of the situation. Um, but when you look at it, when I look at it, I'm like, oh, that child was conceived in surrogacy because that's that's on the front of my mind. And that could just be because I have a six-month-old infant at home and babies are always on the front of my mind. But anyway, it raises an important question. And that is, what rights is this child being deprived of via this situation, okay? This isn't just about deviating from the cultural norm. There's no real meaning to that. We're talking about what is moral and what is immoral. It doesn't really have to do with whether something is weird or not. If it's weird and it's moral, then we should be accepting of it and praising it even. If it's weird and it's amoral, then we could just be like, eh, whatever. Well, here's the thing. If you focus on the child, then it should raise the question of what rights does this child have and is this child being deprived of some of those rights? Does this child have a right to a biological father? Yes. Is this child deprived of that right in this circumstance? Yes. Is this child deprived of the right to even a non-biological father or even a father figure in her life as a parent? Yes, she is being deprived of that right. Is she being deprived of the right to be nurtured in the womb of her own biological mother, as is every single child's right, and as is extremely important? The answer is yes, she is also being deprived of that right. She's also being deprived of the right to a mother who is not preoccupied with gender expression and deviating from the femininity that is a blessing to the female kind and which is critical to fostering healthy children and nurturing them. And of course, I don't know this couple personally, but it would seem based off of conversations that I have had with people who are ex-transgender that that is a preoccupation that they have with gender expression, what their identity is. And I would argue that that is definitely something that would impede your ability to be a parent because one of the most important aspects of being a parent is putting your child before yourself and focusing on them. And it is not in a way, as some people think, extremely sacrificial, like you're depriving yourself of something but that is the order of reality is you are putting your child before yourself. And there is a great amount of joy that is derived from that. But all that to say is children bear the consequences of our rejection of the natural family structure. This child is being deprived in a variety of ways of her fundamental rights as a human being, as a human child. And that is not something to take lightly. I know that it's a, a funny, clickbaity title. It's a weird article. It's a quote-unquote man-bites-dog sort of situation. And people are scoffing at it and being like, oh, that's so ridiculous. And they say, oh, that's so ridiculous, right up until everybody has gender-neutral bathrooms. 
because that is how fast the culture is moving. And if you want to stop the cascade of gender fluidity from sweeping away all of children's rights, then you need to take this stuff seriously. I mean, yes, you can have a laugh about it. Okay, that's that's fine. But also, we need to take it seriously because literally the future of our children are at stake. Literally think of the children, okay? So next time you see an article like this about transgenderism or gender fluidity, anything that has to do with with gender expression and raising children, think about the kids first. That's what I have to say. Now, let's do some a, a little bit of a debunking of conventional wisdom. This case is not clear to me. I'll do your research. I read this article in The Federalist today by my editor, Joy Pullman. She writes, is it baby boomers' fault millennials are leaving religion and less likely to go back? She says, while conventional wisdom says young Americans will come back to church when they marry and have kids, it's likely many millennials will remain secular instead, suggests a recent study. And that is the conventional wisdom, isn't it? It's, well, once you get married and once you have kids, you start to think about life's existential questions and you start to think about how you want to raise them and and you remember back to when you were a kid and how good it was for you to learn about morality and to learn about Jesus and to be part of a church family and to be plugged into those activities and for have a safe place for the kids to go and then so then you start shopping around for churches and who has the best kids program and that is, I mean, that is generally what we we like to tell ourselves is yes, millennials they don't uh, they don't identify they're not they're not with the church right now, but they'll come back. They'll see how important we are. Well, according to the study, which jo- Joy Pullman um, uh, explains quite well, she says in 2018, American church membership hit an all-time low of approximately 50 percent, according to Gallup. Since the turn of the century, the percentage of U.S. adults with no religious affiliation has more than doubled. So in the last 20 years, the quote-unquote nuns who don't identify with any religion have doubled in size. They are roughly the same percentage as those in America who identify as evangelical and only a little bit smaller than those who identify as um, Catholic. Only 42% of millennials aged 18 to 38 were church members in 2018. 18 to 38. Okay, by 38, most people have started their family. Most people have, if they're going to get married, they've gotten married by 38. And so we're seeing less than half, well less than half, only 42% of people aged 18 to 38 were church members in 2018. The question, of course, is, well, what is driving this why why wouldn't you come back to church when you when you start developing a a family or at least when when you get married or why why won't you come back to church well um the american enterprise institute maybe has dug up part of the problem it found in a survey of 2561 people democrats brought up in religious households are roughly three times more likely than Republicans to have left religion. Nearly one in four, 23%, 
of Democrats brought up in religion no longer identify with a religious tradition, while only 8% of Republicans say the same. In other words, it matters what your upbringing is with regard to whether or not you're going to come back to church. And that's why the question is, well, is it baby boomers' fault that millennials are leaving religion and less likely to go back? And the answer seems to be yes, because baby boomers of all the generations, they may have identified as Christian in larger numbers, but they were not um, very involved in their faith, involved in the church, in religious practices like reading the Bible at home, like praying with their children before bed or before meals or, you know, taking them to religious activities, taking them to church on a regular basis. Uh, baby boomers were, were not very good at that at all. And now you see the consequences of that as people say, it seems to be that a lot of millennials are like, well, they may identify as Christians, but they weren't serious about their faith. Why should I be, why should I buy into this whole faith thing to begin with? Why? Why do I need that? You know, if you live most of your life without most of those religious aspects, you might be like, well, I guess, I guess I'm fine the way it is. Like, why would I need to go to church if, if my parents didn't take me and they didn't value, they didn't value religious practice very much. They didn't value their faith life very much. Then why would I? And so the apple does not fall very far from the tree. However, of the children of parents who show a very high commitment to religious practices, such as religious education, reading scripture at home, and church attendance, 93% remained in the faith as adults. So now you see the flip side. There's the good news. If you raise your children as Christians, bringing them up in the faith, showing them the way they should go, taking them to church, reading scripture with them, praying with them, engaging with them, answering their existential questions, right? When I was a kid, um, I had a lot of questions and I spent a lot of time at the kitchen table with my dad talking about these questions and talking about the Bible and saying, what about this? Well, what about that? And he explained a lot of that to me. And if you don't have a parent like that or somebody close to you, an adult in your life who is helping you along in your faith life, um, it, it's obviously, it's plain to see that it's very easy to fall away. And it, as far as the whole childhood issue is concerned, there's, a, there's another piece of conventional wisdom that's debunked here as well. And that is the idea that, well, when children move off to college, that's when they lose their faith. It's those darned leftists in those Ivy League colleges that are stealing our kids away from religion. But actually, 70% of millennial nuns report that they stopped identifying with their childhood religion when they were younger than 18 years old. And this lines up with something that I read. It's a, it's a fairly older article, but I was reading in Answers in Genesis about this study that was done on Sunday school and the effect that Sunday school has on children and youth programs in general. And the findings were very counterintuitive. And the findings were, well, actually, people who go to Sunday school are less likely to adhere to their faith and to adhere to the basic tenets of Christian orthodoxy than people who don't go to Sunday school. And the suspicion, at least on my part, is that a lot of that has to do with how seriously we take uh, Christian education and whether or not 
children are being treated as the, how do I put this? Whether or not we are appreciating kids for how smart they actually are and how deeply they are capable of thinking and whether or not we're actually taking the time to train them in apologetics and to help them answer very, very difficult questions and to encourage them to read the Bible and to challenge themselves. Childhood is not just where you sit around in a semicircle and watch Bible stories play out on a flannel graph. And your faith life as a child cannot, cannot simply be showing up at youth group on Wednesdays and playing a few games and listening to a funny anecdote and that that hour and a half being your only touch point with the faith that you identify with at all. And that's quite possible if your parents aren't involved in taking you to church and doing all of those things that I said before, reading the Bible, praying, etc. Childhood, okay? The way you raise your children matters a lot. Parents, take your responsibility seriously. If you are a young person listening to this podcast, find somebody to be your mentor, to help you answer difficult questions that you can come to when you have doubts and concerns and confusion. Find somebody like that in the local church and stick with them. If it's not your parents, maybe an older sibling, maybe a youth pastor, somebody like that. And I do believe that that is all I have time for today. If you did enjoy this first installment of the new Breakdown Sessions format, please let me know and give me feedback at 180cast on Twitter. And do not forget to subscribe on your way out. It's just one little button. Hit the button in whatever podcast catcher you are listening to so that you will not miss out every Friday and every other Tuesday when I post. And again, this Friday, this coming Friday, so episode 43 will be with Charlie Evans of the Detransition Advocacy Network. We had a really fascinating discussion that I really think that you will be very engaged with. And um, I may or may not put a soundbite here as a teaser for that. I think the, the the biggest thing was how how sexist I felt a lot of the trans and uh, gender identity movement is, i.e. I like dresses and I like high heels and lipstick, therefore I'm a woman because that's how women feel. And I thought that's not actually the propping up of gender that I like. I like we, we should have more gender nonconformity. No one should feel like they should wear a dress and no one should feel like they shouldn't wear a dress. And I started to just sort of see it more and more that that there's no such thing as gender, there's there's biological sex, but that has no bearing on my, because I am female, that has no bearing on if I like cooking or if I like dresses. It, 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 it doesn't mean any of that anymore. And I feel like gender identity has taken a massive, massive step backwards. I don't feel like it's progressive because what we're doing is saying that girls who do not feel like girls are actually not girls. And that's not true. Girl is a sex. It's not, a gender identity it's not a series of 
of stereotypes that one conforms to or doesn't conform to. Was super glad to have Charlie on the podcast and do keep an eye out for that episode coming out Friday morning. Have a wonderful rest of the week. Don't let the news get you down. Seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, though, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. In the middle of a struggle, though, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. In the Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft and Joachim Nordenson. In the middle of a struggle, though, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got.